And then the journalist asked him, what would you have preferred following Hitler the way you did and become famous and a war criminal or just be a nobody, someone nobody knows? And Speer thought for a quick second and then said, I'd rather be famous. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil. The International Criminal Court sentenced former Ugandan militia leader Dominic Ongwen to 25 years in jail. The news came of the shootings on the island of Utoa. Across Paris, other attackers detonate their suicide vest. Bombs explode throughout London. It was an act of pure evil. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Terribly and Terrifyingly Normal. Special for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's the last episode of 2023. But don't be sad, we'll return quickly because on Wednesday the 10th of January we'll be back after our break. Secondly, we're with the two of us today. Me, Nicola Kwaadvlieg, and Alex Meulers, professor at the University of Groningen, specialized in perpetrators. And Alette, your book is coming out next week as well. Yes, I'm super excited. I can imagine. It's great news and we'll discuss the contents of the book in today's episode. But we'll also look back on the podcast series so far. So it will be a bit more of a personal episode in which you get to know us better as a listener. But it still has plenty of scientific depth that you're used from us. So all the more reasons to listen to the end. Alette, it's been a while since we've been only with the two of us, hasn't it? Yes, that's a number of weeks and it seems like ages. <laughs> it really seems like ages. We usually always have a guest. So let's see how this is going. But we've mentioned it already. You're coming out with a new book on the 22nd of December, if I'm not mistaken. Congratulations, first of all. And uh, second of all, what will the book be called? The book is called Perpetrators of Mass Atrocities and the subtitle is Terribly, Terrifyingly Normal. So same title as uh, as the podcast series. Yeah, so before we started the podcast series, we had a couple of discussions on how to name the podcast series. And um, I like the podcast series name, but it was your idea. What do you like about the title so much? I, for some reason, was always fascinated by this quote from Hannah Arendt officially when she described Adolf Eichmann during the trial. And I think it has so much power in it, terribly and terrifyingly normal. There, there's so much in it that I always loved the quote. And I would have loved to have that as the main title of my book. But then the publisher rightfully said so. But from the title, you can then not know what the book is about. And it would be easier to have the main title, Perpetrators of Mass Atrocities, but luckily, they did agree on the subtitle, Terribly and Terrifyingly Normal, because I, I really had very strong feelings about that. And I'm very proud of, of having that on the title of the book, but also the podcast series. Yeah, so there it's not the subtitle, it's the main title. And it's not the first book you've written, but you wanted one more. What was the reason that you wanted to write another book? Um, mostly because before that I've, I've written more books and I especially edited a number of books, but this is my main work, I think, on perpetrators and is the first monograph on perpetrators. And perpetrators of mass atrocities has always been my main focus of research. I've done other research. Obviously, I've done legal research. I did my PhD in international criminal law, but 
my main expertise is on perpetrators of mass atrocities, and I find it fantastic to now have been able to finally write a bigger book, a monograph on perpetrators of mass atrocities. The previous book was an edited volume, which also was great. That was published with Oxford University Press, but this one is a monograph written just by me, and that is what I like very much, and, and this one is published by Routledge. It's on perpetrators of mass atrocities. But what is it on exactly? Well, in the book, I present a typology of perpetrators because there are many different types of, of perpetrators. And a lot of people who talk about perpetrators of mass atrocities tend to talk about as if there is just one type of perpetrators. Which is? Well, it depends a bit on their point of view. Some people say, well, perpetrators are driven by obedience. Other people say, well, perpetrators are mostly mentally disturbed. Uh, yet another person can say they're all uh, scum. And it depends very much on which group they have studied. And I think, and I think that's the added, added value of this book, is that it acknowledges that there are different types of perpetrators. So that is also why I found it very important to, to publish this book. And I don't agree with the people who say many perpetrators are driven by obedience, nor do I disagree with people who say a number of perpetrators are scum. But I think all is true and not excluding one or the other. And that's why I thought publishing this book with the typology on perpetrators is very important to get a more nuanced view on perpetrators. And I hope that will be the thing I contribute to the knowledge on perpetrators. Because just like every human being, perpetrators are nuanced individuals probably. Yes, everyone is different and there are many commonalities between each and every one of us, but there are also certain differences. And I think to acknowledge both, and that is what I try to do in the book, to acknowledge both, because in, in academia, you also have the discussion about perpetrators. Are they more driven by the dispositional factors or more by the situational factors? And by presenting this typology, I think I found a way of combining the two, of saying like, look, the context matters, but dispositional factors matters as well. So the context makes that someone transforms into a perpetrator, but dispositional factors make into what kind of perpetrator, what type of perpetrator you do transform. And you came up with 14 chapters in your book, which are also 14 types of perpetrators. Yes. Did you come up with those types during writing the book? Did you have them before? What was the exact process? Well, I must admit that a verse, first version of the typology was presented in an earlier work as a chapter of a book that I edited together with Rolf Havemann called Supranational Criminology. And there were only, I think, nine types in that book. For this book, gradually I developed more types of perpetrators because I distinguished some types from each other. To give an example, in the first typology there was just the fanatic, whereas in this one I distinguished the fanatic from the holy warrior. Both are driven by a fanatic ideology, but to me the fanatic is someone high up in the chain of command or a leader, whereas the holy warriors are more the low-ranking perpetrators. And I thought it would be more nuanced. Another reason is that this typology develops gradually. 
as I found similarities between several perpetrators, I put them into one category and then tried to give it a name as what is the main feature of those perpetrators. And then along the way, when I found more perpetrators, I checked whether they fitted in the existing types or not, whether I should broaden the type or narrow it further down or create a new time type. So that is a gradual process. And that's why there are also more types here. Uh, a new type is, for instance, the Avenger that didn't exist in the original typology. Another thing that I did compared to the original one is that I included terrorists now as well. Initially, it was mostly focused on perpetrators of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, people that committed these crimes in name of the state, whereas now terrorists usually fight against the state. And why did you decide not to include them before? Because my research mainly focused on people committing genocide and it's interesting because genocide research is a different group of people than the people who research terrorism. And I always found both very interesting, but myself, I was mainly focused on research on genocide. And then at some point, it was actually Jessica Stern who, in a conversation with me at some time, confirmed, she said, well, the terrorists I spoke to very much fit into your typology. And that was something I wanted to do, but her saying that, and she had interviewed so many terrorists, I thought, okay, this is a path to go. So then I decided to start to read all the books on terrorism I had already bought. So I had uh, my own library at home and uh, could easily integrate them. I can confirm the, the latter part, having a library at home. Is it a good thing that genocide and terrorist studies are separated? Well... I think there are many commonalities between them. So I can understand where it's coming from, but it's a pity because there are so many parallels. And now you see scholars who do look at both. And I think that has tremendous added value to look at both. But you still see, if you look, for instance, at conferences, that there are very often conferences that are either focused on more state crime types of criminality and others that are more focused on terrorism. So it's it's still a bit separate, but I think it will be important to uh, get more together. Otherwise you miss out on important information at the other camp, quote unquote. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was it difficult to write the book? Well, it was a very long process. Um, was it difficult? I enjoyed it very much, but unfortunately in academia we have so many other things to do as well. So I had too little time, I felt. And in writing a book, you need several days that you can actually write. So that was a bit of a struggle, but I very much enjoyed writing it. The most difficult part was actually the book is fairly thick. It's several hundred pages, but it was originally even longer. And the toughest part was cutting out certain parts of the book because it had become too big, too thick. So that was the difficult part. And it was a very long procedure, but I very much enjoyed it. And now the book is, is all done and ready. And you've got those 14 chapters and 14 types of perpetrators. You probably have a type of perpetrator that you find most interesting, right? Yes, the one that I found most intriguing is 
actually the devoted warrior. That's the one that we discussed already extensively in, in this podcast series. It's the type driven by obedience, conformism, loyalty, uh, a person who kind of totally submits himself to an ideology, a leader or a state. And those perpetrators I found very intriguing because in an ordinary society, they would be probably the perfect employees because they do everything you ask them. They're extremely loyal. They're driven by what we generally think are positive virtues. And yet these are also the perfect instruments in the hands of a violent or repressive state. And that is therefore the most intriguing perpetrator. And good virtues? Yeah, I mean, the fact that you're obedient, conformist, uh, loyal, in generally are considered good character traits. Listening to your boss if they tell you to do something, for example. Generally, that is considered a good thing. I also learned from my research to much less do so and to always be be critical and probably sometimes considered a, a pain in the ass. But in general, we tend to believe that that are the most positive um features, characteristics. But as I said, that's my main lesson and takeaway from it myself, to not blindly obey, to not always be conformist, but to always critically reflect and take my own responsibility. I can imagine that you also learn how to avoid being a perpetrator by doing work on perpetrator, no? I do think that the knowledge will help you see and recognize certain mechanisms. But I can very well remember in the very first session we had together that you asked me the question, can you become a perpetrator? And I did answer that with yes. And I'm still very much aware that the answer to that is and should be yes. But hoping that having learned and recognized the mechanism that I'm a bit less likely to become a perpetrator because of that knowledge. And that's also the reason why I want to share the knowledge, because that knowledge might help you recognize it, see it, um, be aware of the fact that you yourself can become a perpetrator. And that is something I mentioned earlier before, but believing that you're better or the good person is actually the, the main recipe for doing evil things. You have a lot of students that you teach and you also tell them this story. Would you say that most students, when they start your course, believe that they could be a perpetrator? Some do, many others don't. They still believe that perpetrators are other people who are very different from them. And I remember very well one student, it was already many years ago, was one of the best students I had, very good student, who at the end of the course with the evaluation looked at me and she did smile while she said it, but she said, I hate you. When I came into this class, I thought I was a nice person, but you taught me that I obey any order, follow just any leader, be able to commit horrendous atrocities. I don't like knowing that. I don't like you for telling me that. And I think there is a bit of truth in that. It's not knowledge that makes you very happy, very positive about yourself. On the other hand, it's crucial to realize that because that is your best opportunity to prevent it. And that's also what I told her and tell my other students. You, you must not be the most popular teacher then, I assume. 
Um, well, luckily, I don't know if I'm the most popular, but luckily students in general do like ultimately that they learn more about this because I managed to convince them that the knowledge helps them to make it less likely for them to turn perpetrators. Let me follow up on the question that I asked in the first episode, if you could become a perpetrator. And I follow up by asking which type of perpetrator. You've got a list of 14 to choose from. That's not an easy question. Oh, that is very difficult. Maybe Avenger. The Avenger is a perpetrator who feels that a lot of injustice is done to him, her, or his, her group. And then from that humiliation gets revenge, grievances build up, and ultimately lashes back. Maybe that would be a type of perpetrator I I would be. I don't see myself as something like a careerist or a profiteer. Which are? Um, careerist is someone who's very strongly driven with the ambition to make a mark in history, to make themselves a career, much less driven by an ideology and just following a leader that would put them in a position of power, who are very power hungry. And I definitely don't think I am one of those perpetrators or one of those people who wants to make a mark in that sense or or sees themselves as superior to others because these perpetrators are driven by strongly by narcissism a status as well and that's not not really what i believe in what would be an example of someone that does believe in this Several examples are there. Goering is one, but also Albert Speer. Albert Speer was the architect under Adolf Hitler. And he was, a, I would say, a typical careerist. He wanted to make his mark in history. And, and so did Goering, by the way, because Goering, very interestingly, is that his mother, already when he was a small boy, said he will become a very famous man. And if it's not famous in a positive way, then it will be famous as a criminal, which ultimately indeed came true. But the same is true for Albert Speer. And Albert Speer did a lot to get in a position of power to achieve attention from Adolf Hitler to move up in the chain of command. And he... Also in Nuremberg, managed to, and I think that's also typical for a careerist, realize that the career path he had taken was about to end because of the fall of Nazi Germany. But then he managed to kind of make a new career and became almost German's favorite Nazi in the sense that he acknowledged that the Nazis were wrong acknowledged that he could have known, but did not acknowledge that he actually had known. So in that way, he made an excuse for himself, which was embraced by a lot of German people because they said, well, if a famous Nazi didn't know what was going on and could use that excuse, we definitely could use that as well. So there he made himself another career and was in fact very proud of of that. And just before he he died, he had an interview with the BBC 
And after the interview, he stood together with the, the journalist who had the interview with him. And then the journalist asked him, what would you have preferred following Hitler the way you did and become famous and a war criminal or just be a nobody, someone nobody knows? And Speer thought for a quick second and then said, I'd rather be famous. And I think that says a lot, that he wanted, he wanted the fame. He really attached to fame, to status, being, being someone. In your book, you also give him as an example of a careerist, but you also give many other examples of all types of perpetrators. Who do you find the most interesting perpetrator? Most interesting perpetrator? That's also a difficult question. Another question which would be easier, not most interesting, but the one that shocked me most. Can I answer that first? Sure. That was, in a way, Josef Mengele. And Josef Mengele was one of the Nazi doctors who, in Auschwitz, conducted a lot of horrendous experiments on inmates in Auschwitz. And he was not the only doctor who conducted these experiments. There were quite a few others. But Josef Mengele became the most famous one of them. And he conducted experiments on twins, actually, and did the most, most horrible things. But what, what struck me about him, and I found that horrible to read his stories. Of course, the crimes he committed were horrendous. But I read a lot about horrendous crimes. But what triggered me in him was that unlike what many people think, is that he's not necessarily a sadist. There might have been some sadistic tendencies, but I believe that his main driving force was also to profit from the situation. And Josef Mengele wanted to become a famous scientist and wanted to become a professor. And that was something that struck me very much reading about a man who's doing research and does these incredibly cruel experiments in order to become a professor. Reading that being a professor myself, thinking that this guy did that to get in a similar position that I am in. And that that was, yeah, I don't know how to say what your words to use, but that came very close. And then you were like, ooh, this is, this is awful. I think shocking is a great word. And that also makes me wonder, you've been doing this work for a long time. Are you still often shocked about what people do and are capable of? Sometimes yes, often no. Um, what, what is also very awkward, maybe, is that the same mechanisms that help explain why perpetrators can keep committing these horrendous crimes also works for me as a scholar studying them, because you start to get used to it to a certain extent. So I did get used to reading all these horror stories and yet and i'm happy about that that there's still moments where i do feel shocked and moments where i do feel like this is awful and 
that does show that you're still an ordinary human being and that things come come your way. But on the other hand, yes, you do get used to it just like the perpetrators get. So I don't get easily shocked. It's also not necessarily the cruelty of what happens, but sometimes it's the motive or a situation or maybe on certain days I'm a bit more sensitive to what I read than other days. As I said before, I've seen all of your books and the titles of those books are, aren't the nicest. Also the topic we discuss, but the titles of the books are, are terror, rape, murder, Nazi Germany. It doesn't seem like a very fun thing to be thinking about all day. Is that different for you? What drives me is the interest in wanting to understand why people can do that and how they can do that. And That driving force is so strong that I want to understand and that triggers me, intrigues me and makes me want to learn from it. And I definitely had a period where I found it much more difficult to read all the material. Also because you look around in the world and you see like if everyone can become a perpetrator, well, everyone around me can become a perpetrator. My family, my friends, my my teachers, my fellow uh, scholars. And that isn't a very nice thought. On the other hand, and that is now that I'm a bit further in my career, that I believe that the knowledge which helps us to understand why perpetrators do that is also the knowledge that we need to prevent that. And now that is what drives me. And that is also what I want to share, why I find it so important to share my knowledge with my students by writing books and also by making this podcast. We had Jessica Stern a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and she says that many, if not most, of the uh, people that are investigating perpetrators have their own trauma. Was that for you to say? No, it's not that trauma initiated my interest. I do know that it is true for many scholars on perpetrators, especially in the beginning, those studying Nazi Germany, there were many Jewish scholars who did that. Uh, Many others had issues either privately or their uh, group. I don't have anything like that that would explain my interest in in perpetrators. I knew, of course, about the Second World War, and uh, as my dad was very interested in it, I got very intrigued by it as well and wanted to know more about it. And then I started to read books on the resistance. And in these books, when I read them, I thought, oh, if ever I would be in a period of war, I hope that I would be courageous enough to become one of those resistance fighters and to fight for freedom, protect other people. They were my heroes. And then I thought, but who are these perpetrators? And in those books, obviously, Nazi perpetrators. Whoever would want to be someone like that? Who are those people? And it was this that intrigued me so much that from reading those books on the resistance, I got intrigued. I think that's the the main and the basic answer. I got so intrigued by who these people are and thought, if you ever have the choice, you will never want to be that. So who are they? What kind of people are that? And that started it. Do you think it's a choice for perpetrators to become a perpetrator? 
Not really, because they don't see themselves as perpetrators. They see themselves as freedom fighters, people who want to create a better world. So no, in that sense, they don't see themselves. So it's not a choice to become a perpetrator. On the other hand, I think that the situation plays a role, dispositional factors plays a role, but also certain choices along the way. So I'm not saying, definitely not, that we're passive automatons. However, their choice is there, but it's not choice becoming a perpetrator. It's the choice that you make within a certain circumstance that ultimately leads you to becoming a perpetrator. So from all the types of perpetrators you have, is there any type of perpetrator that does make this choice? Not specifically to become a perpetrator, but there's one group, the predators, who by nature are more violent, sadistic, and they make deliberate choices to outlive their sadism. Also, we discussed whether perpetrators are ordinary or normal people and terribly, terrifyingly normal. Well, that applies very much to the type that intrigues me most, the devoted warrior, but definitely not all perpetrators are ordinary and normal people. And I think the predators... Are, is one of the example, the mentally disturbed is the other example, of perpetrators who are not really normal. They do have certain mental deficiencies, violent tendencies, uh, biological roots to their violence, and they are much less normal. And they also don't really care, and they might very well be aware that they are perpetrators because they enjoy the violence. So for them, the choices are much more deliberate. The book starts with a chapter on criminal masterminds. We've discussed criminal masterminds also in our podcast series, and it was also the first episode with a guest that we discussed. Why do you start your book and the podcast series with criminal masterminds? Because the criminal masterminds are the ones at the top of the chain of command. And they play the most important role. They set the scene. They are the toxic leader in a toxic triangle and are by far the most powerful ones. So therefore, it was obvious to start the book with them. They're also the perpetrators who, compared to all the others, stand a bit apart because all the others commit crimes of obedience believing that what they do is either directly ordered or expected or condoned of them by the criminal mastermind, the one who has most power. So therefore, that perpetrator stands apart, and that refers to people like Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, the real leaders, and all others fit under that criminal mastermind. Without the people like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, etc., all the other perpetrators wouldn't exist. Much less likely, because they create the circumstances. On the other hand, a man like Hitler or Stalin, Mao Zedong, could only rise to power in a fertile breeding ground. So you do need the others as well. And it's an interaction between the others. However, ultimately, they are the main face of the violence. Are they then also the most important ones to study? 
To a certain extent, yes. On the other extent, no, because they're not uh, they're not the only ones. The others make them also into who they are. So it's in it's a dynamic between the criminal mastermind as the the leader and the other perpetrators. And sometimes the leader is made more extreme because of the existence of the other ones. So many of the perpetrators are at the same time the foundation of a certain system as well as the product of a certain system. And it's this dynamic that is so interesting. And that is also maybe one of the main reasons I wrote the book. If you talk about Nazi Germany, many of the perpetrators said, well, I just followed orders. I was only a small cog in a big machine. Now, by making the typology, what I try to do is give a face to all these small cogs and bigger cogs and the biggest cogs in that machine because they are all essential and one makes the other running. Now, the criminal masterminds will be the biggest ones in the whole system, but the system couldn't function without the smaller ones. And the internal dynamic is crucial. And that is the other main reason I wrote the book, to get a better understanding of how these perpetrators interact and how diverse their motives can be and how important still their role is. You mentioned that basically all the perpetrators below the criminal masterminds follow orders and they are crimes of obedience. Still, you have one chapter, chapter 13, that's on followers and conformists. Are they then still a separate category? They're a separate type in the sense that for them, obedience and conformism is the only reason for them to follow a leader or a group. I put the followers I see as more driven by obedience and conformists as the ones driven more by group pressure. All the other perpetrators have additional motives. So you, for instance, have the careerists, the profiteers, the criminals, the predators. They all also are driven by self-interest to a large extent, whereas fanatics, true believers, holy warriors are driven strongly by an ideology as well. Then you have some separate types like the avenger driven by revenge, the compromised perpetrator driven by fear, the mentally disturbed driven by uh, or driven by where mental deficiencies play a role. So they're all additional elements that play a role with all the others, whereas followers and conformists don't have these additional motives. They just go along, follow the flow. And that is, I find, also striking that that in itself is enough to commit such horrendous crimes. What would be an example of such a conformist? An example of such a conformist would be, well, the best example we discussed in the first session already, the book by Christopher Browning on Police Battalion 101, where he described them. But another example, which we also discussed already, were the perpetrators at Millet, the American soldiers, who went into this village and then started shooting. Conformism, obedience played an important role and not necessarily a lot else. But to point out an individual 
perpetrator in this chapter is also Adolfo Schilingo. Adolfo Schilingo was a soldier in the Argentine army and he was not necessarily driven by anything else than just do what he was asked to do and to follow the orders. And Adolfo Schilingo was one of the men who participated during the Dirty War in Argentina. That was between 1976 and 1984, where he describes an episode that he was one of the people who had to go onto a plane with a lot of drugged prisoners who, uh, and they were political opponents who had been arrested first and tortured and then drugged, put on a plane. The planes flew over the open sea and they had to push the people out of the plane. And in that way, the bodies could, could not be found, could not be retrieved. And the Argentine dictatorship at the time could said, well, these people are just missing. We don't know where they are. And that was a very deliberate system back then in order to make sure that all the soldiers or almost all the soldiers would be involved in the crime. And he didn't have any specific malicious motives. He just got the order and he thought, okay, I have to follow the order. There was nothing more to it than that. So he is a good example of a person who just committed because that was the order and he thought it was right. And he came out, his story came out because he was also angry at some point that the leaders within Argentina denied that all this happened. And he said, well, why do you deny that? That happened. And you told us that we had to do it because that was necessary in the fight against political opposition in the dirty war. So either you say and acknowledge that that happened and you take responsibility or you acknowledge that this is wrong. But he felt betrayed that the military dictatorship tried to distance themselves from those crimes and said, well, that never happened or we never gave the order. But could you then not also say that his motives were political? No, because he didn't have a very clear vision on what was right or wrong. He just followed. He was trained to do so in the army. And he said, I don't cannot formulate myself an opinion if this is really a political opponent, if this is really the right way to do that. So I just do what I'm asked to do. The book will come out next week. Yes. And you mentioned that the goal is to inform people about different types of perpetrators to give a more nuanced view, but also to let people know that they can become a perpetrator. When would you say you've achieved that goal? What I find very important is that the book is not just read by scholars studying perpetrators. I really hope that the book will reach the general audience with a more general understanding. It's also the reason why we have this podcast series where I hope that more people will understand what the true motives of perpetrators are and understand that almost everyone can become a perpetrator so that it becomes more general knowledge. That will be for me very important, that it's not something that's done in academia and stays in academia, but that the knowledge becomes more spread out, more known.
So the book is also written for that audience. Yes, definitely. It is an academic book. It is well-researched. Actually, I, I did research for 30 years on perpetrators, and I believe to say that all my knowledge gathered in the 30 years, or almost all my knowledge, is in that book. So it is based on scientific theories, um, well-researched, all that. So it is a scientific and academic book, but it's written in what I believe a very accessible language with a lot of case studies, which I hope will make it uh, very appealing to a general public as well. And I do hope that despite the fact that it's a thick book, it will nevertheless be a book that will be bought by very regular, ordinary people who are not necessarily scholars within academia. <laughs> the ordinary people has a completely different meaning to me right now, but uh, I, I kind of get what you're uh, what you're trying to say. <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> people can already pre-order the book. Yes. Where? They can order it via many bookstores, but also directly via Routledge, which is the publisher of the book. But Nicola, will you read the book? I will read the book. I've already read parts of the book. You've given me some some chapters, some preliminary chapters to read as a preparation for this podcast series. They were really interesting, which is also one of the reasons to start this podcast. If I didn't find it interesting, we would have never done this together. So I will definitely read all the parts I haven't yet. And what are the most important takeaways that you either got from either reading the book or the podcast series? What are the highlights? What I was very surprised by is that I knew about your perspective that everyone could become a perpetrator. So I was aware of that. But what I wasn't really aware of is that, or what I was really surprised by is that all of our guests had basically this same idea. And that kind of shocked me. It was like, I, I was thinking, oh, it's just this one person that thinks everyone could become a perpetrator. The perpetrators are just normal people, but Basically, everyone that we talked to throughout the podcast series said the same. Not to say that everyone in the, the academic world will agree with this, but many more than I thought initially. Oh, that's interesting because, yes, it's it's definitely the predominant vision. There's some people who say not everyone can become it, but most people do believe everyone can become that. And were there particular guests or particular statements that interested you in or triggered you or made you think tr throughout the podcast? I liked all our guests, so that's very difficult to choose. Uh, but one episode that I really liked was the one with Mark Drumpel, where we talked about victims and perpetrators, which is the compromised individual in, in your book. And we talked about, for example, Hans van Dijk and Dominique Nguyen, who started off as victims, but then became perpetrators. And I find this a very interesting dynamic and very difficult to understand. When is someone a perpetrator and when are they a victim? I recommend everyone to listen to that episode, of course, if you haven't done so already. But to give a brief overview, Hans van Dijk was a Jewish woman in Second World War and was a victim. She got arrested for being a Jew, but then could save her own life, basically, by telling the Nazis where other Jews would be. And to protect herself, she decided to snitch on all those people. And at the end of the war, she got the death penalty for doing so. 
And on the one hand, that's very fair because she was responsible for the murder of many Jews. On the other hand, if she wouldn't have told the Nazis, she would have died. And it's very difficult. Where Where is this balance? When is someone a victim and when is someone a perpetrator? I never thought of this dynamic and it's super, super interesting to me. Are, are there certain things that you like to still talk about in the future to make future episodes, certain questions that you have that you want to answer in this as out of a personal motivation? Well, one thing that comes to mind is, which is also one of the conversations we've had, which was was interesting, which is on careerists. And I've, for some reason, myself always been very interested in school shootings. And the one that is the most obvious and maybe also the most interesting to me is Columbine, where Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold uh, shot and killed uh, many people. And it is seen as the biggest school shooting uh, of the United States, even though there have been ones with uh, more deaths than that one. And what I find very interesting is that was one of the first times when I read a book on on their crimes. It was one of the first times that I realized those people kind of look like normal people, right? They had their diaries. They are public. You can read them. And there are a lot of things that I don't agree with. I don't see myself in, but also a lot of things that I do see myself in. Just some days when you had a bad day at school and you're like, okay, screw everyone. And they had exactly the same feeling and then they wrote it down in their anger. But at some point they started to believe in this. But then what I also noticed is that they... In their diaries, they wrote down, when will we get a movie? After we've killed those people, we'll get a movie, but who will play us? And there will be books written about us and people will love us. And the sad part is that all of that is true. There have been movies on Columbine. Uh, people do adore Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. It's very hard to understand, but there are people that really adore them, that see them as their heroes. There are many more people that hate them but there are so many people that adore them as well. And that's kind of the same with the careerist where some people, it seems like they want to have a career. They want to be admired by people and they don't care that 99% of people will absolutely hate them. As long as there's this 1% that loves them and that admires them. And that is very important to, to them. And that was the same. It seemed with Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, especially Eric Harris, I would say he really wanted to be liked by some people and he didn't care that other people didn't like him but he really wanted to be liked by them and i think what could be a very interesting to discussion to have in our podcast is should we name the names of people as as news also in our podcast i mean i've named the names a couple of times so i'm not entirely sure but because we name the names because we say eric harris dylan klebold they become famous because i wouldn't be able to tell you all the people that died there but i would be able to tell you the people that committed the crimes? Do we want to make them famous? Do we give them another reason to commit these crimes? And that would be a very interesting discussion to have, I think. Maybe that's something that we need to do then, indeed, because there are absolutely parallels. They wanted to earn their spot in history, and indeed they got their spot in history. So that is in uh, intriguing. So it might be one of the things that we should add to our list. But obviously we, we also have a list which also has things that we are interested in, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't have made this list. So one of the things that, one of the episodes that will be coming out is on gender. How important is gender 
in committing crimes. And in that conversation, we haven't recorded it yet, but we'll probably see that gender is sometimes the reason for committing a crime. So that is something that's also, I'm very interested in that discussion. And there, there are other things that we're also going to do. So you've got the list in front of you, <laughs> I see. So maybe for, for listeners at home to see what's coming. Yes, a number of things that are coming apart from the gender that you mentioned already is talking about polarization and extremism. We talk about the effects of power. We will talk about perpetrator trauma. We have some case studies on Syria, former Yugoslavia, but also focus on Biljana Plavsic, one of the women, very few female perpetrators that got herself a name in former Yugoslavia. And we also talked to, very likely talked to Irvin Staub, one of the most well-known genocide scholars who might also be in this podcast. So I'm very much looking forward to our new discussion. And, and also the, especially the last one you're personally very interested in, uh, you've told me. Yes, because Irvin Staub played an important role in channeling my interest in perpetrators in actually doing scientific research, as he wrote what I still believe is one of the best books in that. Robert J. Lifton was one very important book, uh, Nazi Doctors, but the second most important book is most likely Irvin Staub's Root, Roots to Evil. Yeah, so there's a lot more to come. A lot of things we're interested in. Hopefully you as a listener are as well. But before you leave, we want to give you the opportunity to suggest podcast topics or tell us what you want to hear more of in our series. If you're listening via Spotify, you can leave this comment in the app. And in the comment, also let us know what your favorite podcast episode was so far. And finally, if you haven't already, please follow our podcast and share it with whomever you think would enjoy it. And with that... I wish you a great holiday season, a happy new year, and we would love to see you back on Wednesday, January the 10th. And Alet, thank you very much for the first season. It was great to record with you, and I'm looking forward to future episodes. <laughs>